Welcome to In the Landscape, a podcast on all things landscape design and care related with your hosts, Kate and Charles Sadler. Hello, and welcome to another episode of In the Landscape. It's great to be here in studio with Charles Sadler. And I'm his co-host, Kate Sadler, and we are going to talk about fruit today. I think mostly we'll start this episode with fruiting trees. Of course, there are vines and shrubs and other kinds of fruiting plants that we could talk about, (laughs) but Mm -hmm. trees seems like a good place for us to start as that's our first love. This reminds me of a trip that we took Last summer, uh, we went out to the Flathead Lake region of Montana. Gorgeous, gorgeous area. And there's a lot of fruit growing there, in particular cherries. So we were staying at an Airbnb on the lake and it was an orchard. We were sort of invited to walk around and you can see some of the videos that we took there on our YouTube channel. So what was that like, Charles, visiting that region for the first time for you, right? I, I had grown up going there, but I think it was your first visit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was lovely. It reminded me, it was drier than the Finger Lakes in New York State, but the landscape reminded me of that, of right around the lake, more or less a rolling hill down to the lake edge. And then it was covered by all different types of fruit trees, orchards. And then, of course, big mountains in the distance in that area because it's up in the Rockies. Yeah, Glacier National Park. Yeah, beautiful area. So what about that region might be good for fruit growing, especially what we saw? Remind us the trees in particular that that were prevalent out there. As I remember, apples, pears, peaches, plum, and then And then the cherries. What's real important, most fruit trees need a cold rest period. So Hmm. like the subtropics, if you're in, say, California, Texas, the the lower southeast U.S. It's often too warm. I mean, it's a really there are species that have a low number of chill days that are required, but more or less an apple tree needs to rest. So if it if it doesn't, so getting cold like it does in Montana is a good climate, and then it gets very hot. There's plenty of rain, and fruit trees more or less can handle hot, dry periods, and, and that's what they really love. That there's cold winter, rain, hot, dry summer. Is there a term you would use for that fruit? Because it almost Mm. seems like that's kind of like the major fruits that you would find in the grocery store, the apples, the pears, as you mentioned, cherries. Then there must be a whole other group of fruit trees that would not grow in this region, the papayas and the bananas. So maybe those are more suitable for Southern climates. They are fully tropical or subtropical and then citrus. And so in particular, I think we'll talk a little bit about stone fruit, plums, pears, fruits you'd find slightly farther north, apples, cherries, and that's mostly what we'll cover today. And then, of course, in future episodes, we'll take a crack at the fruits that you might grow in another region. When you are going to select fruit trees for your landscape, what are the conditions you should keep in mind? You talked a little bit about the climate. How about soil, which we know is important from previous episodes? And are there any amendments to the soil that you should make for fruit trees in particular? Let's see. Fruit trees, they tend to like it sunny. So you're going to need, when they say full sun, it's at least six hours per day. And it's, you can imagine the sun's up for more than that. So even more than that is better. So plenty of sun, well-draining soil. So if, it, if you had a pick, soil that's drier would be better that, than soil that's wetter. Many of these plants come from Central Asia originally, where it's there's still a cold winter, it's quite hot and dry. 
And so that's an interesting thought with uh, not just the fruit trees that we're talking about, but anytime we reference plants is to really think about the environment in which they originated. If it really is not a true native to your location, you may still need to look at what would be native in similar climates. As I think this is why grapes grow so well in California or Chile, because there is that sort of Mediterranean effect happening. And right. similar to where the European grapevine originated, right? With an example, a little bit of a tangent in the Finger Lakes of New York State, my home area growing up, they tried to mimic some of the California vines and that was not a success. And so what they found that did, that did work, grapes that were, that were successful like in climates like Germany was a little similar to New York State. So ice wine, I think, is a, is a whole category, oh, right. right? Yeah. So That's very well, there's lots of ice in the <laughs> finger lakes. <laughs> so that, that all makes sense. So what you mentioned, Kazakhstan and these apple trees, how do they know that they originated there? You know, by doing research and just over the years, lots of reading, maybe you call that horticultural tourism or ecotourism, there's actually still an existing or an extant, like it's an apple forest in Kazakhstan which I think is going to be a World Heritage Site, that somehow it will be if it's not already recognized as something very special. Wow. And how do those trees differ from the ones we would find in an apple orchard in North America? Or, or do they? Are, they? are they the same apple still? And there's even DNA testing. I, I was reading that they've done, maybe with fruit trees, one important component, which would relate to picking it for your home, is the eventual size of it. Like we often talk about the right plant in the right place, uh, seeing a fruit tree, whether it's in a commercial orchard, botanic garden, a park, at your neighbor's house. Now, in the wild, to a good extent, and we can research this further, the plant is it's naturally existing. So there's, let's say you have a, an apple tree, there's a full-size apple tree, and that would often get to be 30, 40 feet tall, is my experience. Then there's a semi-dwarf, which, as the name implies, it's going to grow slower. It will still become large, which is that's really true. When, when you use the word dwarf with any type of plant, it usually means it will eventually get larger, but it just, it's, a, it's a slow process. And then there's a true dwarf, like your sister's house in Oregon. Like they had an apple tree, that's, and so it looks more or less like a bush. So that a true dwarf at maturity, I'm going to guess, is going to be eight feet or so. Oh, and so for somebody without, like maybe with a, a regular orchard ladder, you'd be able to access the fruit on the top of the tree. You wouldn't need sophisticated picking equipment or those trucks that come right. up and like shake the tree. and get, <laughs> You wouldn't that. need that to harvest your own apples if you use a true dwarf. And the, and the nut trees. Sure. So we will link to some images of this special forest in Kazakhstan, which is uh, one could go and visit these ancient apple trees. It's very exciting that they can do that kind of DNA research and see how species of plants have traveled the globe, much like human beings have. There's a very close relationship there. Right. And uh, like apropos of that, the Silk Road, which you often read, it's in nonfiction and fiction. How So Central Asia is quite fascinating because it's between Europe and Asia. When you look up apple trees and other fruit, they believe that it did travel. And they've done DNA testing of, let's say, a fruit tree that's in Asia, and they can tie it back to Central Asia. And then the same with, with Europe, I believe. So and it, it was like goods, services, culture, so many things traveled on that Silk Road from Europe to Asia. 
including potentially the orange tree we were researching, that that actually comes from, well, they think it comes from uh, China, that there's no similar ancient forest that they can point to. So it is, in some cases, hard to pinpoint where these fruit trees originated from. Speaking of orange trees, those would be a little different from some of the fruits we've mentioned. They do require slightly warmer temperatures. Do they do well with that long, cold period that you mentioned, the apples, the cherries need? What's the oranges? Or other citrus? I guess as I understand it, (laughs) which we can look at this further, the orange tree, I think, as opposed to being dependent on on a cold rest period, I don't think it's dependent or it's not as dependent. I think the criteria is that it doesn't get too cold. So when you visit Florida, for instance, there's all kinds of devices, whether it's a giant fan, when it gets very cold, it'll it'll blow the the cold air from the low-lying areas, or they used to use smudge pots, which is more or less you're burning something in a large pot in the orchard to raise the temperatures. So the citrus, as I understand it, if it gets below 32 Fahrenheit for a prolonged period, it can kill the plant. And so in that case, you might need containers or a means to bring it inside during the colder months if you happen to live in the more northern region. Oh, right. Which you see, I mean, many cultures have this practice, but you see it in France quite a bit, which is exciting that the Tuileries and uh, many other gardens that are open to the public where the, the planters themselves are wheeled out, these large wooden, it's almost like a wooden crate. And so it's to celebrate, you can just imagine historically how exciting it would have been to have an orange and be, be living in France. I remember at Christmas time, we would get an orange in our stocking, but we lived in California. So for us, this was <laughs> this was a practice that my mother introduced. <laughs> she was originally from Colorado, which is cold in the winter. And, and so we Californian children were a little <laughs> befuddled that an orange was a part of our Christmas tradition. But I, I can see how special that is if you're in a region where they're not growing kind of year round. So Right. And I, I guess with any plant, it was including edible fruit plants. There's always a cultural overlay, you know, and then it can mean different things. I've done orchard consulting where folks have a home orchard, a home a farm, more or less. I did one in the Hudson Valley, and there might have been one in the greater Princeton area. Both of the people, one were, one were from the Ukraine, I think, and one were from Russia. And so that was quite interesting. They were more or less growing the fruits, which they remembered. And so some of them were the same that we, that we're, we were familiar with. And then there were some that were slightly different, where it was, we would view it like an ornamental. There's a type of a dogwood, actually, which its common name is a cornelian cherry, or its scientific name is cornus moss. And so it has a small red, it looks almost like a mini cherry tomato. And so this homeowner that was from either the Ukraine, Russia, and uh, it was fascinating learning the fruits that were very special to them growing up and they were now living in the United States. And so some of those, like the Cornelian cherry, I was very familiar with as an ornamental plant and it's of course edible. And so in, in that person's culture, they were trying to recreate that, the plant that was very special to them. And I even tried it, that they had some preserves, which they had uh, from the previous season. Excellent. So it's great that you can use fruit trees for food and also to represent your own sort of childhood memories from wherever you may be becoming. So with that in mind, uh, let's talk a little bit more about the growing of fruit and how to do it successfully. So you talked about soil conditions, a little bit about climate. It sounds like there's some consistency there. If you don't have a lot of space, are there any strategies for 
getting fruit trees to grow in smaller yards to, you know, I guess non-orchard spaces. Right. There are many options. So it can be grown in, in a container is, is a possibility, depending on in a temperate climate where it gets cold in the winter, it's going to get colder in the pot than it would in the ground. So it could be too cold, but a container is a possibility. And so to be on the safe side, have an oversized container would be to make sure that it had plenty of insulation for the winter. What's probably even, I don't know if it's easier, but more straightforward would be to grow a plant in an espalier form. And so what that means is you can buy it where it's already trained, but it's more, there's all, and there's all different patterns and styles of espalier, but that's training it so it's more or less two-dimensional. And so it can be grown against a wall. And that's how it was often done. In some cases, it goes back like to the Romans and in Asia, I'm sure they did it. You would grow a fruit that might not be adapted to that climate. It might uh, be like a fig, let's say. And it would be on a south-facing wall. So in the winter, that area would stay slightly warmer than the rest of the garden. And so that way you can have a beautiful, delicious fruit, which might not survive the winter. So there are some types, apples and pears respond quite well to espalier. There are some plants like peaches, which are more or less just fruiting on the previous year's growth. So they're fruiting on small twigs that that started the previous year. So those I wouldn't recommend for espalier, but, and there's all kinds of guidelines where you can do it yourself, or you could buy it pre-made. And so in that case, even if it's only about 12 inches deep, but you have a planting area, you can successfully grow fruit. You mentioned pruning and this concept of a previous year's growth. What we'll do is we'll link to resources that can give you information about how to tell whether it's a plant that fruits on last year's growth. What are some basic guidelines for what part of the tree, what year of the growth will or won't fruit? So for some of your typical apple, cherry, plums, you mentioned peaches, pears. I would say peaches are the exception in a way. So those, we can, and we'll give links to how to do that. As apples, in a way, are the easiest to identify. Uh, they have what's called a fruit spur, which is, it's a swollen bud. It looks almost like a mini thumb. If you think, look at your thumb, it's often a little wider at the knuckle. And so apples have fruit spurs, and those will bear fruit for about 10 years, give or take. So the pruning of apples during the season, for instance, that fruit spur, there's going to be a flower there, and then the flower will turn into the fruit. And this is true with most of the fruit trees. There's that initial, they flower in the spring. And then those flowers will become fruit. Beyond that, so right where that flower is, there might be a new shoot that comes out, which I would call conspicuous growth. And that will grow during the summer. That could grow quite a bit. It could grow 18 inches, two feet, three feet. And that conspicuous growth, you want the plant to become bigger or a different shape. You can train that into eventually having fruit. But that conspicuous growth, could also be pruned back. And so there's more or less two main types of pruning with fruit trees. There's dormant season pruning, where if it's overgrown or if it's dead, diseased, crossing branches, if there's larger pruning cuts to be made, it's beneficial to do that in the winter when it's dormant. So in, it would depend on, on your climate, but you know, roughly in much of North America, be from like December through about February or March would be to make larger pruning cuts if it's overgrown or 
then during the summer, there's thinning. So it flowers, and then that flower is going to become fruit. And then it can get some, like let's say plum trees, can put out a tremendous amount of growth where it's five foot, eight foot shoots and lots of them. And so if you only prune it in the winter, it's hard to keep up with it. And, and the same with some of the other fruits. So the, the summer thinning, where you're more or less trying to create a balanced plant. So the, the south facing side is generally going to get fuller than the north side. It's going to get more sun. And so just thinning it, trying to keep it like a balanced canopy. That's good. I think what's helpful is to know that, it, that there are differences and that you don't prune each fruit tree the same way. I mean, that may be obvious to many of our listeners, but for me, I might be thinking more about shape or height and not as discerning about what is actually fruiting. And of course, the goal is to get the fruit. And sometimes we do consult on these orchards that are not producing as much fruit, the home orchards that the, that the homeowners are, there's just confusion about why it wouldn't be working. And very often it is the pruning strategy. So hopefully those resources in the show notes will be helpful. We also do have a little video on our YouTube page, which is in the landscape, same, same title as our podcast. And so you can visit that to see one of your techniques, which is to keep everything on the tree sort of lattice-like or scaffold-like oh, so that there are horizontal branches and then space in between for the fruit to really fill out. Right. And that's, that's quite important, right? That it's a good resource. It's, it's a commercial grower, but, but they also have lots of great information called Stark Brothers. That's in North America. And one of their tips, which I like, is, which is pretty easy to remember, is when you're removing shoots, the shoots that you want to leave are at about the angles. You have a branch, let's say, that's going up roughly vertical, and there's subsequent branches coming off. So the ideal angles are at about 10 o'clock and 2 o'clock. And so that creates a nice shape for the fruit to grow out. The branches that grow inward, generally speaking, those want to, you want to remove those. So if it's a very young tree, it might, you might not have many branches if you did that. But with the fruit tree pruning, you're, always, you're aiming for the ideal, which is branches that go, grow upward and outward, like a vase-like shape. And so there's plenty of sunlight, air circulation. There's also, when you mention the flowers, something important to keep in mind is that it's the flowers that are going to bear fruit are the ones that have been successfully pollinated. So we'll talk in future episodes about creating good habitat, but you might think about something like the pollinator housing that they have now, little wooden houses with little tubes in them to kind of encourage beneficial pollinators. And in some cases, you need a partner tree or at least a grafted tree so that the different a different flower is pollinating another flower. Can you tell us a little more about that? Oh, right. How there's, we talked about pruning. Some plants are easier to, like the apple and the pear are quite straightforward. And there's some that are a little more difficult. It's, it's the same with a pollination where apples more, I mean, there's always innovations, but more or less you need, if you have a gala apple, a Fuji apple, different types, you, you would need more than what you couldn't have five Macintosh apple trees. You probably wouldn't get many, much fruit. So if you want to have two or more, even like three varieties that, and that more or less are going to flower at the same time. And so what they have, they've had this for many years is it can be an apple tree and on it is grafted three or four or more different types of apples. 
And then that's it's like all the quad graft or a trigraft. The pear trees, I believe, need other pears, but it's it's not as essential. The Asian pears, I believe those can you can just have one. So in a limited, most people have a limited space. And so that ought to be part of the cho- of the decision making on is we're gonna pick a fruit tree. Will this need to be pollinated? How difficult is it to prune? So in that way, you can set yourself up for success instead of frustration. (laughs) So planting your fruit tree is akin to what you would do for any other tree. Is that correct? Um, We talk about planting trees in the very first episode, the right tree. And with your fruit trees, what should you be mindful of as you're getting them in the ground? You want to find the root flare. And fruit trees, depending on how large, if it's in a container, Fruit trees often start out small. In some cases, it, it, it might be shipped to you in the mail, and it would be bare root. So you want to find where it gets wider, where the flare is, and that should be planted at about ground level. It's always good to mix in some organic matter with that. If it's a smaller tree, staking it is very important, like you see in home gardens. If it's not staked, a deer can rub into it, another animal, the wind can blow it over. When the lawn is mowed, it can be quite fragile. And then even subsequently, having protection from deer and other animals where it's some type of a, of, a, of a fence, even if it's only for a few years, is important. We had an apple tree in our backyard, and I think at last count, it had two apples on it. We know this was not for lack of pollination because it was one of those grafted apples, and it was not likely due to poor pruning, because you were responsible for that. So it would appear that it had lost apples to the resident squirrels in our neighborhood, which brings us to pests. One of the great benefits of growing our own food is that we control the degree to which we use pesticides or, you know, we can make it as organic as as possible, hopefully. So if you have a situation with trying to grow fruit where pests or fungus seem to be the problem, what, what are our options and how, how common is that? I guess there's a trend here where it's how hard is it to prune, does it need to be pollinated, and then the pests. So the, we had to pick different categories. Pears of all the fruits, to some extent, they're the most trouble-free. So it may not be everybody's favorite fruit. Apples without some type of spraying they're not going to look like a perfect apple at the store. And so some of the imperfections, it could get like a little, like a black sootiness to it, which can be cleaned off to a good extent. That's a good question when selecting a tree. Is it, can you live with imperfect fruit? So there's some, to come back to an Asian pear, which looks a little bit, it's, it's rounder. It's not quite as much pear shape. So there are some varieties, which is not uncommon in the landscape trade, Uh, species from other countries that are more disease resistant here. And there are creative ways to keep the critters out of your trees, but you may have to be, again, mindful. Of course, if you're doing a spalier and they're on a wall, it might be better than doing it on a fence, which is basically a traffic pattern for squirrels and, and other animals in your yard. There may need to be some physical protection, barriers on the trunk. I guess we've had success in our own garden with the tree, if it was a smaller tree, it could be netted. And that was actually very successful. There were a lot more apple, apples, but there's that added step and it's somewhat seasonal. I wouldn't suggest leaving a net on the tree because the tree grows and then it 
gets entangled with the net. There was even a client, I think it was in Connecticut, they had a peach orchard. It was a home peach orchard. So it was, let's say, six or eight. And so we looked into even creating more or less like a, a wooden frame around these trees that would be like the size of a large commercial garage. So it's you know, maybe 18 feet tall and then 30 feet by 30 feet, let's say roughly. And then netting that because it was the tree produces these beautiful, delicious peaches and the, the squirrels and the other critters would always get them before the, the homeowners did. So in a lot of cases, the, the growing of our own food, tremendously rewarding, but it requires an investment of time and ingenuity and research. And all of that is worthwhile if you want it to pay off. Did you have any other fruit thoughts before we end our episode today? Well, let's see. We've got the Silk Road. That was an interesting history, uh, which we could look into more. A common question is how long before we get fruit? Mm, that is a good question. Uh, so starting with small trees... So that might be one you buy at a garden center and it's a pot that you could lift with one hand. So that's maybe a five gallon pot. Let's say, I guess five, seven, 10 gallon. So a smaller trunk, that's, let's, let's say that's like about the size of your thumb. That's going to be quite a few years to get fruit. Usually it's, when you look it up, it's usually like they say five to seven years. But the benefit of that, it's not going to have defects. You're going to, you can prune it. So it has the right shape. And so it's great with children to teach the whole process of how food is grown. If you wanted more instant gratification, you could have a larger tree that might have fruit right away. And in some cases, it might be too large to plant it yourself. So there's benefits. And I know some home, some home owners like having a mix. So maybe there's several trees where they have fruit right away. And then other areas, there's trees that are developing. Right. All right. Anything else? I guess go out and enjoy some fruit. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You can always support local farmers at the farmer's market. And there's lots of folks growing fruit if it's not possible for you. So it's uh, certainly something we encourage. And for more information, go ahead and check out our show notes. We do have uh, a lot of ways for you to connect with us. We have an email address, connect at kinggardeninc.com. We have our Instagram page, King Garden Inc. And lots and lots of photos of beautiful fruiting trees. We also have uh, some videos, as we mentioned, on YouTube, and more of those should be forthcoming as we get that production up and running again. And of course, we have our Twitter in underscore landscape, and now a Facebook community page that you can join and share comments. We are always looking for questions that we would love to answer in future episodes. Certainly looking for your own garden photos, if there's anything you'd like to share with us. We're totally interested if you have different experiences from different regions of the world. We know we have listeners from all over, which is just thrilling. And so if the planting conditions are different where you are and you'd like to share with us, we'd be happy to do follow-up episodes that are unique to those locations and share that with our listeners from all over. So thank you again for joining us in the landscape and uh, happy fruit season. That's right. Enjoy some fruit. All right. Take care. <laughs> <laughs>